Welcome to the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne, and I'm joined by my cohort and co-host Richard Gottlieb on the keys. This is the Playground Podcast. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. And today, we're going to get creative. We're talking with Brendan Boyle, who started his career at IDEO, is now currently at Fuse London, and he's going to tell us all about that. Uh, and in fact, Brendan, welcome. Well, so great to be here. I love this podcast, and what a thrill to get to talk to Chris and Richard. Well, so why don't we start out like we usually do, uh, asking you to tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are today. Sure, I'm six out of seven kids. So I, you would call me a free range kid. So we just went out and ran around. So I think I had a lot of outdoor toys because my parents or my mom wanted us outdoors. And then I uh, grew up in Michigan. So, you know, changed the weather. So I've been in California longer than that. <laughs> and and went to engineering school in Michigan and then worked in the automotive industry for three years at Goodyear. So I was in the vehicles aisle for the toy toy folks. Um, and then came out to Stanford to do my master's in, in design program, which was very enlightening for me because Stanford at the time was one of the few schools that had their shops open. So you could make stuff. You could go into the shops and engineering schools, the shops were always closed. They didn't want to get people hurt. There, it was like, oh, you got to think with your hands. So I love the aspect of prototyping building. And then from there, uh, I went to David Kelly Design pre-IDEO and then left and started uh, my own toy invention company. And we can talk more about that. Well, do talk more about that. What was it? What was it? I mean, toy, toy invention is not is not for the faint of heart. What was, well, the, what was that like? It certainly isn't. I left my job with 10 ideas and three were in toys, Chris. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. I'll start a toy company. And I started talking to people like you do when you're a new startup. And I met a guy named Gene Kilroy, who was long time in the industry. I think he started at Tonka. And he said, oh, I know what you want to be. You want to be a toy inventor. And I didn't even know that existed. <laughs> so I started understanding what that is. And I was very fortunate. He introduced me to Elliot Riddell in LA and I got to go sure. visit Elliot's studio. And that felt, oh, that's a design studio, but all focused on toy invention. And right. I love the conceptual part. So I started hustling and creating a bunch of toys and it it is hard. <laughs> my, dad my dad was an architect and he told me not to be a, a, a you know an architect, that's too hard. So I ended up being a toy inventor. My, <laughs> My son is a my son is a composer and he's wonderful, but that's got to be even harder. So you know our dynasty is secure. <laughs> well, you don't but, shrink from challenges. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> oh, thank you. So I I started inventing and and at the time new inventors were like they were sort of oh you got to find an agent. I knew I didn't want to do that because I love the relationship part of the business too. So invented something early in my career, the Araby football. It sold for 25 years, and that got me a little bit on the map. And then you start building and meeting people. And then six years later, IDEO acquired my toy invention company, and that became the Play Lab. I see. And and Richard wanted to know, do you like to work with people, or <laughs> do you like to be a, a lone inventor? Oh, no, I love the team aspect. For me, innovation is around collaboration. Yeah, I've always loved being part of a team. And you're part of a team now with Fuse. How did you get to Fuse? So I had a great path at IDEO, loved, loved my accomplishments there and, and everything we, we did in the play lab, it's still healthy and going. About um, the partners made a strategic decision 
to sell Ideal to a collective um, creative collective company called Q K Y U, and that sale completed recently. And it just felt like a good time for me to step off and try a new chapter. And I was talking to Kev Gillian and, and Pete Cartledge, two of the four partners at Fuse, and they said, "Hey, Brandon, why don't you?" play with us for a while. So I've been over to London a few times and enjoying Fuse. And it's just fabulous to be part of this new team. And they are all back in the office, which is great. And I'm helping Fuse represent us more in North America. So I'll stay in California, but I'll be going back and forth. So in- are, are, are you, you're designing and then, and then are you out there selling as well? You tried to sell the oh, concepts? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do, doing both. Going to see our friends in Fisher Price this week. So yes, and the Fuse team is is fabulous. You know they're known for a lot of their transformational magic, but they do so much cool stuff in every category. I'm really impressed with the horsepower, and they're just they're British. They're so kind. <laughs> so so and Rich, Richard said, you know, you're dealing with London, and he says, do, do the inventors in London process creatively different than inventors in the U.S.? Is it a different way of approaching things? The process is, is a little different, but similar. And I'm trying to bring some of the process that I've been teaching at Stanford and I've incorporated over, over my career to kind of turbocharge what we're doing at Fuse. So, yes, it's very similar, but there are nuances that, that we can uh, that I've seen are better and there are nuances where I can add. So I wanted to ask you about innovation because that's the that seems to be the buzzword I'm hearing a lot these days as I go around to toy companies and I talk to them and they say, oh, we're innovating in this way and we're innovating in that way and not naming any names. Some of them really are and it's very exciting and some of them are saying, oh, well, you kind of did that last year and now it's a different color. So what is your philosophy about innovation and finding newness? Yeah, I, I believe innovation is, is one is staying relevant and staying inspired and companies need to grow to stay healthy. And innovation is one of the big ways to do that. And that's a fun way to come up with something new. We've all seen big things in the toy industry come out of nowhere. And it's like, wow, where's that? And you, you can go back to like when Zoomer came out or in Beanie Babies or Furby. All those were big innovations, sort of category busters. And I think innovation comes from process. You can you can come up with a big idea in the shower, but that's hard to replicate. You can't keep going back to the shower. Well, maybe you can if you work from home, but it comes from having a process. And at Stanford, what I teach is design thinking, which is a problem, innovation problem solving technique. But that all starts with being inspired. So going out in the world and getting inspiration. And you can do that on the web, but I like seeing and being places. And then taking that inspiration and then ideating around it, brainstorming is one technique, there are other techniques, and then implementing what you've ideated. So that's prototyping. So that, that to me, that's a process you can count on. You can go back and back to, and that's exciting. And, and what are the things that inspire you when you're, when you're looking for an idea and you're just sitting around, what do you, what inspires you? Well, for me, it's it's staying relevant. Like you, you have to get out into the world and stay relevant. I love this concept called the reverse mentor. So, you know, at my stage in my career, I mentor lots of former students and, and folks that have worked for me, but I look for, for reverse mentors and they, they can't be your kids. They gotta be someone else who's, who's new to the workforce. And you, you can go up to them and say, Hey, you, will you be my reverse mentor? Please tell me about this new dance singer. Tell me about this new, um, whatever the latest app is. And, and they'll, they love that concept. So that helps you stay relevant. 
I think that's really important for the toy industry, especially because guess what? The younger people coming into the industry are a lot closer to, to the kids. <laughs> than well, some of watch, watch time to play and you know, all sorts of things uh, to say, right? Like, like incredible um, thieves out there. I want to talk a little bit about play in the larger culture, and we don't want to we don't want to get rid of play. I have, I have a friend who coaches senior executives about how to innovate in their in their companies, and and they're not necessarily in the toy industry. Some of them are in the outdoor industry or or hard goods or things like that. How do you see introducing play into the the entire process of running a business? Love that question. So this is my work at Stanford, which is a class I created called Design for Play. Most people think play is frivolous or it's, or it's for kids. When I ask companies about play, they go, oh, we got play. And, and then they show me the bean bags or the ping pong tables and the slides. And I say, well, that's great. That's break time. That's not play. Most people think the opposite of play is work. I would argue it's boredom <laughs> or even depression for kids who are coming out of the pandemic who are play deprived. So thinking about play at work is I usually, Chris, Richard, introduce it as engagement. Bigger companies have something called KPIs, key performance indicators, and they have one around engagement. So I say, what's your KPI on engagement? And they're usually really proud of it, or they go, oh, it's low, we gotta get it up. And I say, well, play is one way to do it. And they go, what do you mean? We can't have our people goofing off. I go, no, figure out challenges that they wanna do that will make their work more exciting. If people are bored at work, they're probably polishing up their LinkedIn, looking for a job that's gonna be more exciting. So how do you make your team and play is one of them. So I talk about design thinking. I say for inspiration, why not do some role playing? Get on the world, be the modern day anthropologist, go interview people, be a reporter. That's fun. We used to role play as kids. And then for ideation, I say, let's do more exploratory play. I love when a leader says, hey, just go play around with that. You're going to get something way better out of your team if they don't have the pressure of coming up with a big idea right away. And then for implementation, constructive play is the way to make ideas happen. Too many companies work on their slide decks to convince each other this is the next big thing versus go make an experiment prototype. That can be physical or digital. It just needs to be tangible. Play is sort of a paradox because it feels fun. How can we have fun at work? No, we should have fun at work. It's going to be it's going to make work more joyful and delightful. And, and as Richard is, is chiming in and saying, you come in contact with Gen Z now through through teaching. What can we expect from them over the next 50 years? It's <laughs> a long time. Will, will they create very different kinds of toys or is the past more powerful than the future? What, what are we looking forward well, to? Back to play and toys. A toys is a noun, play is a verb. So I always like play. I've designed seven different play labs in my career and I'm sitting in my own play lab here. But I think they're play behaviors that won't change. They're, you know, you think about role playing and, and as kids, we got to role play all the time. You, you think about rough and tumble play as, as kids. It's a little misunderstood now where kids look like they're wrestling. They're just having fun. Uh, or you think about imaginary play and storytelling and all these things. So I think play behaviors will be there. I hope object play, which is toys, will always be around. I think it's a fabulous way to learn. And there'll be a combination of digital and physical. That's certainly going to happen. But what is meaningful? What causes play? And there'll be all sorts of new toys in, in the world that I believe will still cause play because it's a great way to learn. And one of the things we're hearing a lot about right now is mesh, right? Which is mental, emotional, and social health. And yeah. there are all sorts of new toy lines coming up around that. There are 
stuffed animals that hug you. There are different things that get get you centered. What are you seeing as sort of the state of play right now if you look at preschoolers and younger kids about what they need out of play in this culture? I think what they really need right now is more social play. Because think about, especially in the Bay Area, some kids that were four, four or five years old were literally in the same four walls for almost two years. So they're not developing that social play in getting back into the classroom. So there's going to be, I think, more things that are fun to be in a group that makes it easier to be back in a group. We all loved recess as kids because we got to go out and just move. There's a lot about movement play, body movement play. That That's why recess is so fun. We did a, a project in school with an uh, organization, uh, learning organization, and discovered if we could put more movement in the classroom, then it would feel a little bit more like recess. So... I, I think social play is key is what, what we should all be working on. It really is. It's really interesting because I talk, I've talk. i talked to a lot of first and second grade teachers in the last year, and, and they're finding that the kids might be academically a little bit ready, but they're not They're not emotionally. They haven't been socialized to being ready. Yeah. And at the same time, there I'm seeing a, a trend in elementary schools where there are beanbag chairs and there are things where you can pedal as you're sitting so that the six and seven, six, seven and eight-year-olds were not designed to sit still from eight in the morning till three in the afternoon. No, I've seen first grade classrooms with those big yoga balls so they can just yeah. move a little bit. There's a lot I'm interested in that some of my work at Stanford touches on in the science of play. You think about the science of sleep. We all know that sleep's important and we all think that's important because we've read or heard so many studies about it. So it's, it's like when I started my career, my boss would come into work and go, I only need four hours to sleep. I'm tough. I'm like Thomas Edison. And we were like, oh, geez, maybe, <laughs> maybe we got to sleep less. If you said that now to someone new in the workforce, they'd say, um, Brendan, don't you know about sleep hygiene and how important it is? So there's a lot of studies more recently in the last five years showing the benefits of play from research. So pointing to those, you know, one is fostering creativity, one is fostering health, um, all sorts of things around this. And how does your personal experience, this is from Richard, how does how does your personal life experience shape your creative skills? What do you draw on? I mean, I draw on being a, a kid who was in trouble a lot and went to detention, uh, as I think Richard, Richard did too. We were rambunctious kids. Uh, but what do you draw on? Oh, I, I, that's such a good point. I. I draw on um, my class at Stanford, it's called play, so it better be engaging. But I had so many boring classes growing up in Michigan. I was just like bored out of my mind. This is Catholic upbringing, you know, so it was crazy. So I draw on that. I draw on um, my students a lot. And then, boy, it's just different life experiences. It is really, you know, life's a bunch of different chapters. So this new chapter working with Fuse, I, I find just so stimulating. They are such professionals and so creative. I'm, I'm getting a boost of being around new creative people. And, and what's that like? What Can you give be a little more specific? Well, I just like being in the studio because it's, it's a problem in San Francisco and New York where people aren't coming back into the offices. I mean, it is, you know, there's big offices and, and everyone, if you do come in, people go sit on a Zoom. The, the challenge with a Zoom, Zoom's efficient, it's great, it's working for us now, I love it. But the challenge is you don't get the question that I love when creative teams are together. And that question is, hey, what are you working on? And you go, oh, I'm working on this. And you go, oh, I worked on something like that. Oh, this is an idea I had. You don't ask that question in a Zoom because you know what you're working on. It's in the title of the Zoom topic. So 
that that sort of spontaneity, I think, um, is is lost. The efficiency of the Zoom is great, uh, but there's a combination. So I think there'll be new hybrids, but it has to be at some point critical mass in the office if you want that part to work. So going back to, to what inspired you, Richard says he draws on being a Jewish kid in a Christian world in the South, and he played in the Presbyterian League and, le- and led the league in getting hit. I don't think he, I don't know if he means getting hits or getting hit, but um, I, I was not much of an athlete either. Uh, I was in the band. Uh, <laughs> but I ran track, so I would just run away from the bullies. That was my, I had to stay fast. So. <laughs> and Richard meant getting hit. Uh, that, that's great. Um, if someone's entering the business right now, and this is one of the things Richard and I have talked a lot about, is we don't do enough as an industry to let people know that this is an industry that they can that they can get into. What do you tell people if they're considering uh, a life in the toy industry, or or how do you rope them in? Yeah, uh, I would say become a maker, and that can be a, that can be a maker, physical or digital. I mean, you guys are making you're making podcasts, but make something. And, and also think with your hands. So if you're making stuff, also include physical stuff too. There's almost hard to get away from digital. So think about digital too, but it's all, eventually we'll stop using the word digital. It'll just be that stuff, right? right like there's, right. there's no more head of digital marketing anymore. Remember when, when that was around, now it's just head of marketing. So I think it's that. I think it's, you know, I, I always wished I'd worked at a big toy company. So I would have had some of those connections early or worked at a bigger toy invention. I, I was learning as I went, which right. is sometimes good in some ways because you, you don't get scared. Like otherwise I'd get off this roller coaster if I knew what was coming. <laughs> well, that's kind of old school. Uh, that's that's a, a, you know kind of old school, the, the toy industry of the post-World War II years, where people came up by their bootstraps, the guys from Whammo, they just sort of made yeah. stuff up. And, you know, this is a different time. And Richard's asking, and I, and I want to know, what's your experience with AI? So everyone's, everyone's fooling around with it. And um, certainly you should be experimenting with it. Uh, for chat, GPT is really interesting. You can kind of treat it like an assistant. But I think, and people are using using the visual ones. We're using it at Fuse as experiments. I, I think... You still have to start with some kind of good content. You're not just going to have it create everything, or you're going to have to be able to edit it and, and change it and modify it. And, and not a lot of the creativity is in what's the right prompt. So TBD on this one, but it's just like it reminds me of when the internet first came on and everyone's afraid of that. And everyone's so don't be afraid, experiment. So that would be my advice. And, and that's sort of great advice for anybody in the toy industry. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, why do you think people are so afraid of, of that? And this is something Richard's asking. And, and I, I wonder, it's, it's because I do see, I was just in a meeting and, and people were afraid to speak up. So I was like speaking up. But right. why, why do you think people get so, so afraid or so afraid of being creative or putting stuff out there? Well, it's, a, it's a, taking a risk. It's like raising your hand first. Uh, it's like... Um, Ben Verity, who you know, it's Ben, he, he, he and I are good buddies. And I said, Ben, what's kind of your secret? And he said, I've always been um, able to, to feel like a fool for one second by raising my hand or doing something. Right. So it, it's getting more comfortable. And that play can really help that in organizations. It, it, if you show the boss something like a prototype and the boss says, what is this? And it's made out of foam cores. It's rough, early prototype. And the boss goes, what is this piece of junk? 
Uh, every, everyone all of a sudden then waits to show the boss something that's perfect, fine, polished, and the organization then doesn't see as much stuff. So I always coach leaders, um, be able to squint, be able to squint and see what, what they're trying to show you. And then your organization is going to feel safe to show you more things. So play is a great way to do that by making it feel safe. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is so important about play that we kind of have lost culturally is that play is about process. We get so focused on the results that we forget right. the process. And I always think about kids who are skateboarders, right? They know they're not going to hit that trick every single time, but it's the process of trying to adjust and get to the next step that keeps the person engaged. It's exactly it's the same for learning. It's, it's, a, it's a key game mechanic around flow. If it's too easy, you're bored. If it's too hard, you give up. So when you're learning to skateboard, you, you, you have a mini success and you want to keep learning. So the great example. So I, I know you've had a lot of successes. Do you have any spectacular failures that, <laughs> that you look back on and go, oh, what was I thinking? Oh, my God. It's, it's almost all the time. It's like, um, <laughs> but some of them are, you know, still in the vault somewhere. So they, uh -huh. who knows? They may still be a success. But uh, I have one of my earlier um toys was called the grand slam bubble bath and oh, i remember that actually it was that catico but i first pitched it down at a big major and it has a motor in it you press the button and bubbles came out of the bat you know american bat and then you would swing and so i'm down there and i'm all proud of it and i pull out the proto and i hit the button the motor whirs but nothing's coming out and they're like four execs sitting across the table and back then everyone's wearing suits and ties so I tap it, nothing's coming out. I tap it. And finally, out of frustration, I kind of swing it, thinking I'll jiggle that mechanism. <laughs> Nothing worked. But the bubble solutions went all across the Houston <laughs> side. Talk about a failure. <clears throat> uh, so I learned from that right away how to say sorry a million times and, and, and get invited back. So that was a win. I took it to Catacol, sold it to them. And it was great. It had a big first year. Then it got put on the most dangerous toy list. Remember that guy who would oh. write the most... P-I-R-G, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, was, yeah, the guy in Boston. Random. Yeah. It was just kind of random who, what items he put on there. There's no complaints on that item or nothing. So it failed again by being a, a biggest. <laughs> I remember that one of the, the toys that was on that list one year, because when I was at CBS, we always dreaded that one of our toys yeah. would be on the list. And yeah. one of them was an action figure. And he said this action figure could, could cut somebody. And the way he demonstrated is he took the app action figure and smacked it into an apple until the apple's <laughs> skin broke. And this made the news. <laughs> and we're all going, yeah, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> I, I think it's one of those, it's like winning the lottery in reverse. You should be proud of winning the lottery, but but not that way, but yeah. It's interesting because one of Richard's favorite stories is about going to visit Ruben Klamer, the inventor of the game of life yeah. out in in uh, California. And he had a, a shed in the back where he put all his his ideas that didn't make it. Right. And you sort of alluded to that. Do you have such a place in, in your world? Oh, yeah. Uh, any major toy invention company will have the, the vault or the prototype rooms. And uh, now, they're, you know, we're all categorized so we can find them in a hurry. You know, when I first started, I would have just, yeah, I had a small office and I had, I had to put up a curtain to hide all the prototypes back there. <laughs> and prototypes that never sold, I kind of threatened, you know, in front of new prototypes, like, don't be a bad prototype. Go out there in the world and, and, and get sold. So, yeah. yeah. And, and as Richard said, Ruben, Ruben called it his warehouse of broken dreams, which is. Yeah, I, 
I remember Elliot Riddell t- taught me, he hated to see the DHL guy because he called it the angel of death, bringing back a prototype. Yeah, we used to we used to get them at CBS and unsolicited too. It, like they would come in and you would sit, you would realize it. you'd open it up and see that it was a toy prototype. You had to tape it up, take it up front, have it logged in because we couldn't take anything, yeah, you know, unsolicited. Yeah. So yeah, it was pretty crazy. The um, biggest prototype I ever shipped was I did a concept for Power Wheels. I think oh my I'm goodness. the only inventor licensed the power was it's called the Jeep Wrangler Aftershock, the big fake motor in the front right. rumble. So it was kind of fun. Uh, but yeah, that was a big, that was a huge prototype. That, that it would be a big prototype. So this is amazing. What, what happened? I asked you that I should be asking you. I loved your questions around play. And again, play is lifelong. I think a lot of adults think, again, it's just for kids. I, th- I think find your play. And I usually coach people up, what's your hobby? And they talk about their hobbies and they go, if they're snowboarders or if they're mountain bikers or, or if they love to read, they talk about all the passion they have for it and effort. So it is, play can be effort. It's, you know, it can feel effortless, but it should, you know, it can be something like your hobby. If you're blessed or fortunate enough, if your hobby is what you do, then it feels like fit. Yeah, uh-huh. So a lot, a lot of hobbies turn into fit, right? You know, right, right, exactly. Um, you know, and, and as Richard said, and I agree with him, he doesn't like the word kidult, which is really a big buzzword right now because it, it does feel pejorative. Adults want to play, and and that's okay. And it's it's something that showed up in the Hong Kong Toy Show about thirteen years ago, and now it's been adapted. That that I, I totally agree with you guys. I don't think it's kidult. I think it's a better way to think about it is a playful mindset. Do you have a playful mindset? I can look at you, talk to you guys for five minutes and I know, wow, he's a playful mindset. And that comes across with joy and delight and engagement. And that's what I try to coach students through um, about finding a playful mindset. It's, it's just a more joyful way to go through life. This is amazing. And I'm going to ask you now the question that we ask every one of our guests on this season of the Playground Podcast. Who is the person or the people who've most inspired you or affected you to get to where you are in your career? Yeah, well, there's uh, several, but I'll have some highlights. One would be uh, Elliot Riddell, who I mentioned. He was generous and he's been generous throughout my career. Uh, Shoot the Moon guys, uh, David Small, Paul Rago, and then David Kelly and Tom Kelly, the brothers at at IDEO, huge around um, certainly my Stanford work and IDEO work. And now my new friends at Fuse. So it, it it is a wonderful area to play in. And we cause play out in the world, but we we have to make sure we're playing ourselves and, and have joy ourselves. And we do, uh, which, is, which is why it's so much fun to talk to you. So, Brendan Boyle, thank you so much for t- spending the time with us today. This has been fantastic. I just love talking to you. Oh, this is great. Invite me back every week. Okay. <laughs> right. You, we're going to have to start giving out coffee mugs for people who are repeat offenders. Anyway, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Richard, very much. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are supported by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. We'll see you next time.